This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Welcome to our listeners and viewers in the United States and around the world. Welcome to our Knowledge at Wharton and Wharton Leadership Conference event. As you know, by signing up to this, that we have a series of presentations from leaders from around the world and around various parts of society and business talking about issues associated with leadership. And today, it's great pleasure to have with us the Right Honorable Lord Baker of Barker of Battle. Greg Bunker, uh, it's a pleasure to have him with us. Uh, he was elected a member of parliament in 2001. Uh, after that, during the Cameron government, was Minister of State for Energy and Climate Change and is currently executive chair of the N Plus Group, an energy company uh, based in Russia and around the world. It's a great pleasure to have you with us. Greg, welcome. Thank you, Peter. I'm really flattered and honored to be here. Uh, maybe the first thing uh, to do, we want to get into the climate change topic in just a minute, though, is uh, you will be, I'm pretty sure, the only Lord uh, on uh, our seminar program. Could you just tell listeners who are not familiar with uh, this UK institution uh, a little bit about how one becomes a Lord? Well, historically, what does it mean? yeah, sure. Well, it's a it's an honorific title, like Sir. Um, so it carries a title, but, histor- but historically, um, not only did it carry a title, but it also entitled you to sit in Parliament. Um, there was a House of Commons, which was elected, and then a House of Lords, where everyone who had inherited a title um, was able to sit. And together, they passed laws um, together with the monarch. Um, over the centuries, the power of the House of Lords steadily declined. Um, and then in the 1960s, in the 20th century, they introduced something called the life peer, um, which was a very British way of changing a historic institution to reflect the modern times while keeping a semblance of history about it. So nowadays, following a series of reforms, the most recent of which was under Tony Blair, the majority of, of lords in the House of Lords, and I use that phrase to mean both women and men, um, the majority are actually appointed by the by the government of the day. So there are about 700 members of the House of Lords, um, and about 600 of those have been appointed over the years um, because the appointment is for life. So you enjoy the dignity and style of a lord in the historic sense, but you don't pass it on to your your uh, eldest son or your heir, as you would have done historically. There are still about 100 hereditary peers in the um, in the House of Lords, so the Duke of Wellington, for example, still uh, sits in the House of Lords, and a number of other people with famous historic titles that you would recognise. But there is the role of the of the Lords is a revising chamber. The power clearly rests with the House of Commons, and the it is supposed to, and I think largely does reflect a very broad um, uh, degree of people from different walks of life different experience, different experts, although there are a lot of um, former professional politicians like myself who have gone on to do other things, but this is still a way that they can contribute. Yeah. Uh, Well, one of the ways you've been contributing uh, in a very important topic is the topic of climate change and your role as a minister before that, but afterwards as well, a recent um, op-ed piece uh, a week or so ago, I think, in the Financial Times, 
uh, and making the case that we should take climate change more seriously and address it. Uh, I wonder if you say a word just about your experience in pushing those arguments forward, which started a while ago, maybe just a little bit about why that was important to you and, and what were the difficulties in trying to advocate for climate change? Well, I went into politics in 2001 um, and had a background in business when I went in and was given a piece of advice uh, on entering politics and not really knowing many of the people in the, in the Westminster corridors to find uh, a subject, to uh, swat up on it and to make yourself useful, particularly given that I was elected in 2001 as a Conservative Member of Parliament at a time when we were in deep opposition and Tony Blair looked like he was set to rule for the rest of the century. And so uh, there was no, uh, no hurry to, uh, to uh, get ready for government. So I took that opportunity to join the Parliamentary Environmental Audit Committee just at the time that climate change was coming up the political agenda globally. Um, it was the time that Al Gore, for example, was writing an inconvenient and published an inconvenient truth. And I remember that having a real impact on me. And it, it prompted us as a committee to launch our own uh, investigations into the, the issue of climate change. And to me, it became a really fascinating, all-consuming subject because it included the economy, it included the way we live, it includes um, softer things like education, and it, it, it is an international issue. It's not something that is just affecting domestic politics. But also, it was an issue which demanded innovation, it demanded a full response uh, across a suite of policy measures. Um, and that not everyone was taking it seriously. So um, I, the more I read, the more um, convinced I became that this represented probably the greatest long-term threat, not just our country, but the planet faced. Um, so it, it became inescapable that I would want to be involved in that. As I understand it, uh, your efforts to push this to the front of the agenda uh, were not always the easiest things uh, to do. Can you tell us a little bit about what was difficult about trying to, and it continues to be difficult, about trying to get attention for this topic, and, and how do you make progress on that? Sure. Um, well, when I first started talking about this in the early 2000s, a lot of people in the British Conservative Party thought I was a complete crank, um, mm. mildly eccentric, or even... Um, that I was some sort of uh, socialist in green clothing. Um, and that really prompted me not just to uh, explain the problem of climate change, but also to make an authentic conservative um, pro-business case for why we should be taking action. Um, not only just to appease my conservative colleagues, because I genuinely believe that we needed to marshal the, the um, dynamism of the free market economy and send it in a direction um, that would that would find climate solutions. Um, and I've always been fundamentally optimistic that solutions could be found. I've never been one of these hair shirt, doom and gloom climate mongers. Um, but certainly it was a battle. Um, early on, uh, people wouldn't just debate whether or not we had the right solutions, but would debate the actual science. Um, you know, half of my career was spent arguing with you know, very respectable climate deniers. And uh, 
that was a real challenge. Thankfully, that has now passed. I think 2015 was a real seminal moment. I think that was the last time when I was on the BBC effectively debating with somebody who really didn't think this was an issue that should be taken seriously. Now, the whole world seems to have moved on. And the question is not if climate change is happening, not if um, mankind is responsible, but what should be the nature, scale and pace of response? And that's a much better place to be in. And also, we've had a huge degree of success, which often goes uncelebrated. Um, one of the biggest achievements of my political career, I mean, it wasn't all down to me, I played a small part, but something that I was very proud to be involved in was the passing of the cross-party um, Climate Change Act in the UK in 2008. It's the first Climate Change Act anywhere in the world. And it unilaterally committed uh, the United Kingdom to reducing carbon emissions by uh, then by 80% by 2050 from 1990 levels. And you know, people said, well, you, you can't do this, this is impossible, you'll ruin the economy. And what's happened has, over successive years, we were able to grow the economy in the UK, quite impressively in the early part of this decade, um, at the same time, reduce emissions. In fact, the UK has now reduced emissions by 86%. Um, emissions are now have been, were last time that low in the late 19th century. So we're over halfway of meeting that original goal of 80% reduction. Um, and uh, Theresa May, Prime Minister Theresa May, before she left office, um, actually moved the goalpost up to 100%. Um, so um, we've still got a long way to go, but we have made real progress, um, in large part due to the phasing out of coal and the... Uh, creation of an entirely new industry in the UK of uh, renewable energy. So you've argued in the Financial Times last week that um, in the middle of this coronavirus uh, pandemic around the world and the shutting down of the economies, but also the efforts to pour more money in through the public sector, that this is an appropriate moment to really take a big step forward. Uh, with respect to climate change. T tell us a little why. What's, the, what's that argument uh, like to say this is the time to really make an effort? Well, in the face of this unprecedented pandemic, certainly unprecedented in my lifetime, every business leader, first and foremost, is focused on the short-term health and welfare of their employees. Um, I uh, uh, am executive chairman of the N Plus Group, and worldwide, we employ over 100,000 people, um, not just in Russia, but in Europe, um, in Africa, um, in Central America. So we have a global footprint um, and we feel a great sense of responsibility to our employees. And we're seeing COVID-19 hit at different times um, right the way across the different regions and jurisdictions that we operate in. So that's our number one focus. But um, if I could quote Fleetwood Mac for a moment, um, you can't stop thinking about tomorrow. Um, and you know, if you're a business leader, you've got to be capable of doing more than one thing at a time. And so in as well as responding to the immediate uh, health and safety needs of employees, we've got to think about the longer term impacts. And, you know, as Winston Churchill said, um, never let a good crisis go to waste. And that is really now what we have to do. Um, you know, there is a serious opportunity with 
huge amounts of government money being poured into the global economy for policymakers to insist that that investment is channeled in certain ways, that we once and for all kick the highly polluting, environmentally damaging, carbon-intense industries and business practices of the last century or more. And we use this as a real opportunity to have a step change um, towards a low carbon, more sustainable future. And there are different ways in which different industries, different countries can approach that. But we do have to see this as a once in a lifetime opportunity to make that change. I think you make a great point about the importance of trying to get people to think future rather than focus on just the current problems. How do you do that when you have the argument with other business people or political leaders about taking climate change seriously? You really are trying to argue that they should think longer term. What do you think has been persuasive in trying to get people to think longer term about this and not just be so focused in the world of business, let's say, on their quarterly performance or their immediate political concerns? How do you get them to think long term? Well, I think in order to have license to talk about the future and to posit your ideas for that route map to the future, you have to at least be competent in dealing with the present. So it cannot be instead this is not an either or agenda. So you have to show that you are able to deal with the very real challenges in the here and now. And, and that's never been more critical than when, when facing this, this pandemic. But as I said, it's, it's not an either or agenda. So if you can do that, I think that does also buy you go to talk about the future. And if you're going to do that, I think you have to be very clear. And this goes to sort of certain leadership lessons. You have to be able to clearly articulate and communicate what it is you want to see, not just speak in woolly management speak or, or popular you know, hashtags. You have to have a clear idea and a route map of actionable points. Um, one of the things that frustra frustrates me um, and increasingly in, in recent times has been the willingness of companies, big business to set uh, long-term goals, which are absolutely needed. Um, after all, I was involved in setting a Climate Change Act, which set, set targets all the way up to 2050. But effectively, it's CEOs setting, setting goals for their successors or their successor's successor to meet, while actually doing very little in the near term that they are going to be held personally accountable for. So it's really important that you have a credible route map and a credible plan as well as just talk about the future in an abstract way. Uh, before we began the broadcast today, we were talking, my colleague Mike Usim was asking a little about uh, David Cameron, your colleague and uh, leader in the parliament uh, and his leadership style. Could you tell us a little bit about his effectiveness? He seemed to be quite effective in leading in this kind of context. Say a little about what you saw with him. David had a, or has, a natural authority. Um, we came into the House of Commons again, uh, together, very small cohort in 2001. And it was immediately apparent to me that he stood head and shoulders above the other members of parliament. And so when um, there was an opportunity for a new leader to be put in place in 2005, without hesitation, um, I encouraged him, along with others, to step up, even though he was relatively young and relatively new on the scene. 
um, it was very clear that he had the X factor um, for leadership. Again, he was he is you know incredibly articulate. To see him at the dispatch box, he was able to put into words and craft the sentences under pressure uh, in front of in a way that very few people are able to do. But he was also a very serious administrator. I mean, had a you know a first class degree from uh, Oxford, um, had a you know a, a fine brain. But I've seen plenty of uh, more intelligent people or more academically qualified people not be able to convert that intelligence into you know political effectiveness. And David was able to marry the both. I remember seeing him in Cobra. Cobra is our sort of UK version of the Situation Room. And I was on a hostage, international hostage crisis. And in the room, it's not it's not the same as the cabinet. Within this um, situation room, you would have the heads of the army, navy, the special services, top diplomats, the intelligence services, and key ministers from a relevant departments, depending on what the nature of the crisis was. And David would enter exactly on time at 11 o'clock, sit down and immediately call the meeting to order and crisply work through the agenda. A lot of politicians that I've come across, across always have to try and prove that they're the most intelligent or important person in the room, despite the fact that they hold the highest office. He, David had an, you know, always very thoughtful and listened to the, the advice, but, but at the end, you had absolutely no doubt as to who was in charge um, and a clear direction and a clear course that he was setting. So, and he was a very agreeable person to work with. Um, the David Cameron you saw uh, in public was very, very similar to the David Cameron in private, um, which, um, you know, a lot of politicians are not like that. There are a lot of politicians that have a terrible public image and in private, they're delightful. Um, conversely, there are some very popular politicians who are a nightmare in private. But David was very consistent, um, and I, I you know, remain um, a, a, a huge admirer of his. So I'd like to share the podium here with my colleague, Mike Eustim, who is director of our Center for Leadership and co-host of the series and our leadership conference. Uh, Mike has been looking at questions from the audience, but also, I think, has his own questions, too. So, Mike, can we go over to you for a minute? Thank you, Peter, and thank you, Lord Barker, for being on our program. Very interesting discussion. We're getting a good number of questions in. I'm going to begin with one of my own, but then bring in some of the questions that our listeners are indeed forwarding. In the FT uh, op-ed piece that you wrote, you use the phrase, build back better, build back better. Uh, I find the phrase really appealing. Uh, and in thinking about its application now in the uh, coronavirus moment, how do you see the UK, the US, other countries uh, building back better, and who's going to drive that? So there it is. What do you think? Well, ultimately, I think we're going to build back better because the people of the UK, of the US, and around the world are going to demand that we do. We live in a new democratic age now where everyone, thanks to social media, has a voice. And I think there is an increasing clamor that we don't just go back to business as normal. Now, in my own line, what does build back better mean? Um, I um, uh, lead the world's largest producer of low carbon aluminium. To put that in some sort of context, the average uh, ton of aluminium can take up to 16 or 18 tons of carbon to produce because it's so energy intensive. 
But because my group uses hydropower, we're also the world's largest private sector hydropower company. Um, because we use that to make aluminium, instead of being 18 tons of carbon for a ton of aluminium, it just takes 2.6 tons. So it's really important when considering structure projects, if you're using um, uh, these tax dollars to uh, invest in renewable en energy, in um, electric vehicle charging points, uh, electric vehicle manufacturing, uh, uh, sustainable housing, that you don't just use the materials like aluminium that lend themselves to that application, but you use low carbon aluminium, that you think about the consequences, not just of the thing you're building, but the whole supply chain in order to make it a more circular economy and create more sustainable outcomes. And I think having sustainability and climate um, action at the forefront of our mind as we embark on these, build, you know, bringing back the economy is a once in a generation chance. We, you know, no one would have wished for this pandemic, but it's a fact now we have to rebuild the economy. So let's not waste this opportunity to build back better. Um, I didn't invent that phrase. It was originally conceived to talk about resilience um, when building after a natural disaster. But I think it lends itself to, I think, not just a national mood, but a global mood post-pandemic, how we really need to build something better and, you know, and can assure people who've, you know, made huge sacrifices during this pandemic that it hasn't, you know, just been for a short-term um, effort that actually something better is going to come out of this huge collective effort. Great. Thank you, Ahmed. I'm going to draw on a question now from one of our viewers that is directly related to what you uh, described there, building back better. And that is, how do we know when a, in this case, by the question we have in front of us, a particular company is doing that or not? What are, what are one or two metrics that you would look at, both if, if you're a business executive at that company, but also if you're in parliament looking at that company, to know if they are indeed coming back sustainably or not? Really good question. And the answer is, it's quite hard, actually, because you know business is not as transparent as they should be. In my own sector, I've been arguing since last year, when I took up this role, that we should all be, all the major manufacturers of aluminium should be um, declaring the carbon content of the metals that they produce, because there's such a huge discrepancy. Chinese aluminium, 18 tons of carbon. Um, our aluminium made with hydro, and uh, we're not the only producer, but you know, is 2.6 tons of carbon. So huge discrepancy, but there's, you have to really dig to find that. And it's the same in many other uh, industries as well. That information is not readily available. I would like to see much better green labeling. So it was, on, on products, on consumer products, and carbon transparency for commodities so that when um, uh, vehicle manufacturers, when uh, people building public buildings or uh, large infrastructure projects, that it's very clear what the carbon content and also the wider sustainability features of those projects are. And you know, people have been talking uh, sustainability for some time now. I think this is the time when we've got to convert that talk into tangible actions, and we've got to be accountable for them. And the only way that businesses can be accountable 
for their actions is to have greater transparency um, and greater disclosure on the sustainability and carbon content of either their products that they make or the services that they offer. Uh, Lord Barker, one more question from, again, one of our viewers here, uh, directly related as well, and that is bringing in the topic of inequity and inequality, which has worsened both in the UK and the US in the last several years, and building back better. What, what are your thoughts on how to ensure that in coming back from the current crisis, we don't further exacerbate the inequalities, which now are appearing um, both in, in heightened poverty rates, for example, but also in the politics of the moment. So what is your thinking? I'll just sum that up uh, about building back better uh, while not worsening and hopefully improving the extent to which we have um, equity and equality in both of our countries. Well, I think it, this is a time for strong leadership, and it's time for politicians to think outside the box and maybe even outside strict party lines. Um, in previous pandemics, in previous plagues, the survivors have actually been left better off. For example, if you go back to the Middle Ages and the Black Death, after that pandemic, so many people were killed that there was actually a shortage of labour and the living standards of the, the peasants of the of the of the of the labouring classes actually rose in the in the uh, couple of centuries afterwards um, as a result of the need to compete for labour. But now what we're seeing is that in actual fact, um, far more jobs have been destroyed in our economy than um, than, than thankfully than, than people um, have been, and that there are going to be huge numbers of people um, around the world who will have their livelihoods threatened or their jobs taken away. And that does require new thinking and recognizing that this is an entirely new set of um, circumstances. And it requires a really strong policy lead from politicians. It requires collaboration and partnership, um, collaboration and partnership with business as well, and clear sets of goals. I think um, politicians have to be very um, clear to the public what it is that they are trying to benchmarks of success and also be uh, honest about what can't be achieved because you know we're not going to be able to just bounce back better immediately and there will be um, casualties of this terrible pandemic economic casualties and we have to make sure that we scoop them up as well as well as you know identify the sunrise industries and the areas that will benefit from you know an, a green recovery uh, Lord Barker, thank you on that. We are about two minutes away from a station break, so to speak. So I'm going to very briefly sum up a couple of points. I've been taking notes um, and then mention our next uh, pres presenter on this particular series. So from Lord Barker, uh, who's long been active in business and politics, uh, my point number one is don't let the fact that you're in business prevent you from getting into politics or the other way around. Uh, if you have an opportunity to lead, don't be shy about uh, taking that leadership to another institution, whether business to politics or from a community group to another uh, kind of institution. Number two, build back better. And this goes back to the reference to the uh, the famous quote from Winston Churchill, don't let a crisis uh, go to waste. And building back better is a moment to take the crisis. We're all ready for change. And indeed, let's bring everything back better than it was before. Uh, and then number four, uh, if we're going to build back better uh, under the circumstance, 
we do have to have a plan, a strategy. The devil's in the detail. And so uh, in, in general, of course, we want to come back better. But I think the leadership of the future is going to entail uh, of necessity building back better in specific ways, whether it's climate change or whatever it may be. So, uh, Peter Capelli, thank you for getting this uh, particular event underway here and guiding our discussion with Lord Barker. Lord Barker, thank you for being with us. And I just want to let everybody know that is uh, still tuned in here. Uh, this is a series of uh, presentations by people who had been signed up for our annual leadership conference. Our next guest on June 4th will be Lori Ryerkirk. He was the chief executive officer of Selenese Corporation. It's a Fortune 500 firm. It's in materials and chemicals. Got uh, six or seven billion dollars of revenue to worry about, about 8,000 employees. And we're going to hear from her directly about how she has guided her company through the events of, of the present. So thank you, everybody, for joining the program. And best wishes to you. Be safe and be healthy. Thank you very much. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.